All right, <clears throat> can be seated. Uh, the children are dismissed downstairs. You're probably way ahead of me. That's okay. Oops. Ah, sorry, I'm trying to stand the wrong way. <clears throat> okay. Uh, first of all, I'm always grateful when uh, the elders give me a chance to do this. So thank you to Ethan. Thank you to Mike, wherever you are on your way back. I appreciate you asking me to do this. Apparently, Adam and Eve have been real easy targets for all kinds of dad joke humor down through the years. Like, what was Adam and Eve's first marital conflict about? It was about who really wears the plants in the family. <laughs> or uh, my former pastor once quipped, the real problem in, garden, in the Garden of Eden wasn't the apple in the tree, it was the pear on the ground. <clears throat> Somewhere my kids are shaking my, their heads going, off. Oh. Some jokes are so bad they're just paternal. They're the daddest of the dad. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, or at least most of Genesis 3, which is a passage and a topic that is unfortunately not a laughing matter. But even though it's a difficult passage in this church, when we come on difficult passages of Scripture, and we do not punt, we do not unhitch, we do not skip, we do what we always do. We humble ourselves and listen to God and do our best to understand what God is saying to us. So if you're new to the church, or if you're visiting, we're preaching our way through the book of Genesis. And just a little recap on where we've been so far. In Genesis 1, we saw that God created everything from nothing. And God did that in six days. And on the sixth day of God's creation, God created humanity, male and female in God's image. And then in Genesis 2, we got a little more detail on what, how exactly God created humanity on day six. And we learned that God created the first man from the dust of the earth, named Adam, and that God gave Adam a task and a commandment. And then God deemed that it was not good for the man to be alone. Up to that point, everything was good, 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 good. But then God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. So God created the first female human from the man for the man, to help the man to reproduce and to rule, and perhaps most importantly, to obey God. And God brought the one man and the one woman together to form the first marriage, and they were naked and not ashamed, and everything was very good. Now in Genesis 3, a fourth character enters the stage, the serpent. And the serpent enters the stage with the evil intention of trying to get the humans to disobey the one command that they've been given, which is not to eat from the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent questions the woman about what God said and why God said it. <clears throat> and the, woman, the serpent is able to successfully convince the woman that she will not die if she eats the fruit. And so the woman eats from the tree and gives some fruit to her husband, and he also eats of the tree, and then their eyes are opened. They see something they've never seen before. Guilt, shame, suddenly their nakedness is a problem. So they try to cover it up themselves with fig leaves. Now in the first part of Genesis 3, we had not heard from God yet. Everything that goes on in Genesis 3, 1-7 to is between the serpent, the man, and the woman. So as we come to our text this morning, God is going to re-enter the stage. And the big question that needs to be answered is this. The man and the woman have both done the one thing that God commanded them not to do. What is God going to do about it? If you have a Bible, we're going to read our passage. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 24. This is the word of the Lord. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid, man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. So as God re-enters, you know, Adam and Eve are aware of God's presence in the garden, which seems to have been a regular thing. God makes his presence known to them in the garden. But because of what they've done, now it's a problem. And so they try to hide from his presence instead of embracing God's presence. And God is going to question them. And God is going to question the man first and then the woman. And this, by the way, is also additional evidence that the structure of marriage was in place before the fall. Adam is the head of the marriage and the woman is his helper. Even though Eve, even though the woman was the first one to eat at the tree that they were both commanded not to eat, God is going to question Adam first. The buck stops with Adam. Now, why is God questioning them at all? I mean, God knows where they are. God knows what they did. Why is God asking them questions at all? Well, a long time ago, in the 1990s, I was a software guy. I was an IT guy. And I had some people who reported to me, and one of the guys who reported to me on my team one day asked if he could work at the night shift instead of the day shift, 12 to 8 a.m. instead of 8 to 4. I'm like, yeah, sure, I don't care. So one day I was at my work computer and I was looking at my browser cache and I noticed some website names which I could tell by reading them were clearly porn sites. So the next morning at 8 o'clock in the morning when my coworker was about to leave after his shift, we were talking, he was reporting to me, did this, did this, did this, okay. As he's about to leave, I said, oh, by the way, I said, someone has been using my computer to access porn sites. Was it you? And he said, yeah, it was me. Okay. It better not happen again. Do you understand? He said, yeah, I understand. Okay, see you tomorrow. I didn't know if it was him, but if it was him, I wanted to at least give him a chance to own it and take responsibility for it, which he did, to his credit, as far as I know, it never happened again. 
God is giving Adam and Eve a chance to own it. He's asking them. He's giving them a chance to own their sin and confess it and take responsibility. But they don't. God questions Adam, and Adam blames God and blames his wife, the woman that you gave me. Adam doesn't deny that he did it, but he doesn't own it either. God questions Eve. What have you done? Eve does not blame God and does not blame her husband, but she blames the serpent. She doesn't deny that she did it, but she doesn't own it either. So they've both been questioned, and neither one is willing to own it. So now God is going to pronounce sentences against first the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. And so God begins with the serpent. And by the way, just so we're all clear on this, uh, the serpent in Genesis 3 is a physical manifestation of Satan himself. Okay, I know that's sort of assumed, but that's actually correct. And there are a couple of scriptures in the book of Revelation which positively identify the serpent of Genesis 3, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So, yes, the serpent in Genesis 3 actually is Satan in an embodied form. And so Satan is given two consequences, humiliation and condemnation. First, humiliation. God says to Satan, you will crawl in the dust and, or crawl on your belly and eat dust. And again, this is not talking about reptile behavior. These are spiritual consequences. They have to do with humiliation. Satan was an angelic being, in some ways, above the creation. Now he's brought low. He's humiliated below the level of the animals. That's his consequence, permanent humiliation from his, where he was as an angelic being before he's brought low. He's permanently humiliated. And the second <clears throat> consequence is condemnation in Genesis 3.15. Now, Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, where God says, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, and, um, and you know, he will, you will crush his heel and he will crush your head. Again, this is not talking, when it talks about the seed of Satan, we're not talking about baby snakes. This is the spiritual, spiritual offspring of Satan. All those who join Satan in rebellion against God will be at enmity with this one particular descendant of the woman who will someday crush his head. So this is the very first expression of the gospel in all of Scripture, even in the midst of this condemnation of Satan. Now this also raises a question, I don't know if you've actually thought about this, but is there any chance of Satan ever repenting of his sin? And is there any chance of Satan ever being restored into some kind of fellowship with God? Well, one of the most iconic movie moments of my youth was in Star Wars Episode Six, a.k.a. Return of the Jedi, when Darth Vader switched back to the good side of the Force. And for people of a certain generation, Darth Vader was arguably the greatest movie villain of all time. I mean, everything about him, he was just evil itself. The black suit, the helmet, the mask, the raspy breathing. You know, the voice, I find your lack of faith disturbing. He could choke people from across the room. I mean, Darth Vader was evil. But at the end of the movie, he switches back to the good side. And if you want to know how iconic that was, when I saw that movie in the theater in 1983, when Darth Vader picks up the Emperor and throws him into a conveniently located abyss, the whole theater breaks into spontaneous applause. Yeah! That's iconic. So is there any chance of Satan ever coming back into some kind of fellowship with God or repentance? Well, the answer from Scripture is no. When Satan fell and the demons fell with him, their fate was sealed. And there are a couple of scriptures on that. I'm not going to read them, but you can look them up if you want. Those, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation, confirm the fact that Satan and the demons, their fate is sealed. 
There's, in that illustration, they're more like the emperor. They're destined for the abyss, and there's no way out. Their fate is sealed. Now, does that seem unfair? No. God does not owe Satan anything, least of all a second chance. God is completely just to condemn Satan and the demons to the abyss of hell. And by the way, God did not owe the man and the woman a second chance either. God would have been perfectly within his justice and goodness to just end their lives right there. He warned them, if you do this, you're going to die. I warned you, you did it, goodbye, your life's over. God would have been completely just to do that. But God extended grace. You know, before the first expression of the gospel was the first expression of grace. Proto gratia, if you like. You know, if God decides to condemn Satan without grace, then praise God. If God decides to extend grace to humans, then praise God. God is good. And so then God moves from the serpent to the woman. Now, God does not specifically declare the woman to be cursed. God does not say to the woman, you are cursed, the way he said that Satan was cursed. But God is going to give the woman two consequences, one related to childbearing and one related to marriage. So the first consequence is that the multiplication of the human race will now be accompanied by a multiplication of pain. Now, we're not exactly sure how childbirth would have worked before the fall. You know, Adam and Eve didn't have children until after the fall, and it doesn't seem like anything changed about human physiology because of the fall. So if they had had a child before the fall, the child would have had to come out the birth canal somehow, and I can't imagine that would have been completely pain-free. But the consequence is multiplication of pain, as in exponential multiplication of pain associated with childbirth. Every single mom in this room is muttering under your breath, yeah, yeah, easy for you to say. Okay, I get it. I'm a man, I have no concept of what childbirth is like. Okay, touche. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. The first consequence for the woman is that the childbearing process to multiply the human race is going to be accompanied by a multiplication of pain. And also, uh, just as a little aside, uh, since we're talking about that, uh, we want to be sensitive to the fact that there is another kind of pain that in some ways is worse than the pain of having children, that's the pain of not having children. And so we are aware of the fact that many women feel that pain because of infertility or miscarriage or those kinds of things. That's a pain that in some ways is even worse than childbirth because the physical pain of childbirth is temporary, but the emotional pain of infertility and miscarriage sometimes never goes away. So if you're a woman and you're feeling that pain, and we want you to know that God sees you, God sees your pain, and God is near to the brokenhearted. So the first consequence has to do with childbirth. The second consequence has to do with marriage and the power struggle that's going to characterize marriage after the fall. It says, your desire will be toward your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what exactly does that mean? Your desire will be toward your husband, and he will rule over you. Well, excuse me. Sorry. Well, in order to understand what this statement means, your desire will be toward your husband, and he will rule over you, we have to jump ahead a little bit to Genesis 4. Uh, This word desire that's used here is a very obscure word that's only used three times in the whole Bible, but it's also used in Genesis 4 in connection with the word rule. And so we're going to preach through Genesis 4 next week, but just briefly, in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons, they both bring offerings to God. 
Abel's offering is deemed acceptable. Cain's offering is not deemed acceptable, and Cain's angry. So God speaks to Cain, much like God spoke to Adam and Eve. He's giving Cain a chance to repent of his faithless offering. And God gives Cain a warning. He says, God says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door, and sin's desire is towards you, but you must rule over it. So there's a, in the early chapters of Genesis, there's two power struggles, and they're parallel to each other. And we have to understand how they relate to each other in order to understand what they both mean. So there's two power struggles. They're similar in one way, but different in another. In both cases, someone wants something that God does not want them to have. In Genesis 4, sin wants to have something that God does not want it to have, which is control over Cain. God does not want Cain to be consumed by sin. You know, in 2 Peter, it says, God does not desire that anyone should perish, but that everyone should reach repentance. That's always been true. That was true in Genesis 3 and 4. God does not want Cain to be consumed by sin, but sin wants to consume Cain and control Cain. In Genesis 3, wives are going to desire something that God does not want them to have, which is control over their husbands. So there's two power struggles. Now the difference is, Cain was supposed to overpower and dominate sin, but he couldn't. Husbands are not supposed to overpower and dominate wives, but we do. Let that sink in for a minute. Two power struggles. Sin wants Cain. Wives want control over husbands. Cain was supposed to beat sin into submission, but he couldn't. Husbands are not, I repeat, not supposed to beat our wives into submission, whether physically or otherwise, but sometimes we do. That's the consequence, the power struggle, the fight for control of marriage. If you've been married for any length of time, you are very much aware of the fact that every single conflict in marriage, in one way or another, is about control. Fighting for control of the marriage. Who's in control? Is it the wife? Is it the husband? Is it nobody? Is it Satan? Or is it God? If the answer is anybody other than God, there's a problem. So, you know, Genesis 3.16 is not a blueprint. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Some people think that it is. Some people think the reason why husbands are the head of the marriage is because of the fall, because of Genesis 3. No, 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 no. This is a consequence. The blueprint's in Genesis 2. One man and one woman are brought together, and the husband is the head and the wife is the helper, and they operate in oneness as a single unit. That's the blueprint. This is what happens when oneness is severed. This is the consequence. But this also raises a question. Okay, if husbands are not supposed to rule our wives by domination the way Cain was supposed to dominate sin, what does headship mean? What does, what does leadership of marriage entail? What's it look like? Well, I think the best way to explain it is this. Kings, or let's just say heads of state, are actually empowered to use lethal force in the exercise of authority over their political domains. Kings are actually empowered to use deadly force to punish evildoers in the domain of the state. Like Romans 13, pray for the governing authorities so they do not bear the sword in vain. So kings are given the sword. Fathers are empowered to use non-lethal force in the exercise of their authority over their young children. Now, as fathers, we are empowered to punish disobedient, rebellious children. We are empowered to enforce obedience in the home. Fathers are given the rod. Husbands are not given a sword, and husbands are not given a rod. 
The only tool that husbands get to exercise our authority in marriage is the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, brothers, husbands, we don't get a sword. We don't get a rod. The only tool at our disposal with which to lead and be the head of our wives is sacrificial love that Christ showed. The marriage relationship is not symmetrical. Okay? The marriage relationship is not symmetrical. Wives are commanded to submit to husbands. Husbands are not commanded to either enforce submission or to do whatever we have to do to obtain submission. We are not commanded to do that. The marriage relationship is not symmetrical. We don't get a sword. We don't get a rod to wield authority. The only tool we get is that, the sacrificial love of Christ. So kings are given the sword, fathers are given the rod, husbands are given the cross. So let's stop for a minute. Married people, how's your marriage? I don't want to be a false prophet and accuse people of things they're not guilty of, so let's just ask, how's your marriage? If your marriage, nobody's marriage is perfect, but if your marriage is relatively healthy, praise God. Praise God. Keep doing the things that are going to keep your marriage healthy. You know, marriage is something you have to build, otherwise it'll fall apart, right? You know, love is not a hole in the ground. Love is not something you fall into. Love is something you build. And marriage is not like driver-assist cruise control, right? Marriage doesn't keep itself on the road. It has to be built. So if your marriage is relatively healthy, keep doing the things that are going to keep it healthy. Keep spending time together. Keep loving each other and serving each other and sacrificing for each other, and keep enjoying each other at night, and keep worshiping God together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Keep walking in step with the Holy Spirit together, and be intentional. You know, I, I need to love my wife every day, not once in a while. You know, I need to think of ways to love my wife every day, not if I feel like it. That's how marriage works. So if your marriage is healthy, praise God, but just understand that Genesis 3.16 is always lurking in the background, and the temptation to fight for control is always going to be there. Now, if your marriage is not healthy, if conflict is the defining feature of your marriage, then you need to get help. I'll just tell you that as a brother in Christ. You need to get help. If you're part of this church, talk to the elders, find an older couple, find somebody who can help you start to rebuild your marriage. The rest of the world thinks that marriage is disposable, that marriage is optional, you stay together if you want, if not, find somebody else. We can't be like that. God has a higher view of marriage than that. So if your marriage is defined by conflict, then you need to get help. And, and also as an aside, we also want to be sensitive to the fact that there are men and women in this church who have unfortunately been through divorce. And if, that, if you're feeling that pain, that's a similar type of pain to not being able to have children. It never really goes away. So I'll say the same thing. If you've been through divorce, just understand that God sees you and that God is near to the brokenhearted. Unmarried people, young people, single people. Uh, I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. I'm not trying to dissuade you from getting married. On the contrary, if you have the desire to get married, great, praise God. Build your relationship with Christ as a single person. Walk in step with the Holy Spirit as a single person. If God brings you together with someone and gives you the chance to build a marriage, then build it. Build a marriage that honors God. Have children if God allows that <clears throat> for you. you know, build a family that will be a witness for Jesus Christ by all means. But just understand something. Genesis 3.16 is what you're going to be up against every single day. 
Every single day is going to be the temptation to fight for control. And that's, sometimes that's hard to understand in the early stages, right? When you first meet someone and you're attracted to them and they're attracted to you and you tend to only see their good qualities and you might want to think, well, I would never have a conflict with this person. Yes, you will. If you marry that person, yes, you will. Because this is the world we live in. Because Genesis 3.16 is always there. So, if you want to build a marriage, great. If God gives you the opportunity to build a marriage, praise God. But just understand that Genesis 3.16 is what you're going to be up against every single day. That's why marriage has to be built every single day. So after God has addressed the woman, now God is going to address the man. And again, God does not declare the man to be cursed, just like God did not declare the woman to be cursed, but Adam is also given two consequences. And the consequences that come to Adam are basically given to him as the representative of all humanity, because the consequences that are given to Adam are not limited to men. Uh, the first consequence is that the ground is cursed because of what Adam did, meaning that all work, all productivity, all this business of working in order to produce and provide is going to be painfully difficult. And the word pain is the same word that's used in 3.16 about a woman's labor pain. The pain of work, and I know there's no actual comparison there, but it's the same type of painful difficulty that working in order to produce and provide is going to be a painful struggle against a hostile earth for men, women, children, anybody who does work. It's difficult. And this curse is also, by the way, not limited to agriculture. I don't know if we have any farmers here, but you know, people who do physical labor, yeah, it takes a toll on your body, it's difficult. A lot of us make a living more with our brains than with the rest of our bodies, and that's okay. You know, I, I was a software guy for 12 years, I did that, it was good work. It could be draining sometimes, and of course, if you work with people, there's the inherent difficulties of working with people. You, know, you have difficult coworkers, difficult customers, difficult bosses, if you are a boss or if you're an owner, you can have difficult employees. You know, there's just inherent difficulty in working with people in a fallen world. So any efforts to work in order to produce and provide is going to be under this curse that's given to Adam. And then the second consequence is that Adam's death sentence is confirmed. You will return to the dust from which you were taken. And clearly that curse is not limited to men either. Men and women and unfortunately sometimes children will die. <clears throat> so, after God has pronounced his sentences, in the last part of this, we have some responses. And Adam's initial response to all of this is very interesting. Adam has been told, unquestionably, 100%, that he's going to die if he ate the tree. And now he's just heard the death sentence be confirmed. You will return to the dust. But what does he name his wife? Living. The word Eve, or Hava, in Hebrew means living. And so Adam has heard God tell the woman that this descendant of his wife who has not been born yet is going to crush Satan's head. It certainly sounds as if he believed that. You know, a little bit later in Genesis, we're going to find out that Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and God believed the prom or Abraham believed the promise even though he didn't have kids yet. And so in Genesis 3.20, it certainly sounds like Adam believed the promise even though he didn't have kids yet. So if Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.20 certainly sounds like the proto-fides, first faith. You know, it certainly sounds as if Adam believed God and believed the promise that God had made to his wife about this 
descendant. And so after Adam's first expression of faith, then we have the first ever substitutionary sacrifice, which God performs. You know, God clothed them with skins, which means animal skins. So God sacrificed a couple of his own animals that he had made in order to clothe the man and the woman. They had tried to clothe themselves. They realized the inadequacy of it all when they tried to hide. So God makes a substitutionary sacrifice and clothes them to cover their sin. And then the last three verses, God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, never to return before they have a chance to eat from the tree of life. Now, we don't know whatever happened to the Garden of Eden or the tree of life. We don't know what happened to it. All we know is that God, Adam and Eve were never to return. And the bottom line is, Adam and Eve had to die. That needed to happen. There was no way around the death sentence that God had promised them. Adam and Eve had to die. That was necessary. It just had to be that way. So where does that leave us? We're at the end of Genesis 3. What what does this have to do with us? Where where does it leave us? Well, Genesis 3 is the world we live in, and we still live in it. Um, We don't get to skate on the curse of sin because we're Christians. Our work is difficult. Our marriages are always vulnerable to conflict. Childbearing is difficult. All these things are still true. And you might wonder, well, if that's true, then what's the point? Why bother living? Why, Why follow Jesus? Why do anything if we're in this cursed world and we're all in it? Why bother? Well, the answer is that this is not the only world. And Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. Genesis 3 is the beginning of the story of redemption. Did you notice all the firsts in Genesis 3? The moment that Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that God did was show grace. We have the first expression of grace when he questions them and doesn't just destroy them on the spot as he could have. We have the first expression of the gospel This descendant of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan, even as Satan bruises his heel. We have the first response of faith in all of Scripture. Adam believes this promise that God has made, even though Adam doesn't have kids yet. And then we have these two themes that are going to come up over and over and over again in redemption history, which are seed and sacrifice. You know, the seed, like Genesis 9, when God makes the covenant with Noah and they come off the ark, God says, this covenant is with you and your seed. Or Genesis 15, God promises Abraham seed as numerous as the stars in the heaven or the sands of the seashore. Or Psalm 89, when God promises to David, one of your seed will sit on the throne forever. And all of these seeds, of course, are pointing to Jesus, as we find out in Galatians 3, that Jesus was the seed that all of these seed promises were pointing towards. Sacrifice. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel bring offerings. Genesis 9, when when Noah and his family come off the ark, They offer sacrifices. Genesis 22, the substitutionary sacrifice of the ram in place of Isaac. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. The book of Leviticus, major parts of Leviticus are all about animal sacrifices. Or 1 Kings 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple and they sacrifice more animals than anybody can count. And all of that is pointing towards Jesus, who is the sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews explained to us in Hebrews 7 through 10. So back to the original question. Humanity has sinned. What is God going to do about it? You want to know what God's going to do about it? God is going to send his son to die so that humanity's sins can be forgiven. What is God going to do about it? God's going to send Jesus, the seed, to be offered as the sacrifice on a cross 
And even as Satan and Satan's offspring bruise Jesus' heel by nailing him to a cross, when Jesus rises from the dead, he will crush the head of Satan by conquering the power of sin and death. What is God going to do about it? God is going to lavish grace on sinners. If we are willing to humble ourselves and own our sin and confess it to God and receive his forgiveness, we can be saved from our sin. We don't have to be consigned to hell and the abyss alongside Satan and demons like we deserve to be. We can be brought back into God's presence. We can live lives in this world that please God. We can do good work and provide even despite the ground curse. We can have marriages that honor God despite the temptation to conflict. We can have children despite the pain. And we also get to proclaim this message to every man, woman, and child despite the resistance and persecution that tends to go with it. What is God going to do about it? God is going to send his son back to earth. And God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth that those who have placed their faith in Christ and been forgiven of their sins will be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And thank you for this chapter of beginnings in the book of Genesis. Pray that many will hear and be transformed that we would truly live lives that please you in this world. And we thank you for saving us so that we can live for you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we thank you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.